Primary Care Knowledge Boost Podcast 3, Irritable Bowel Syndrome. Hi there, welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. I'm Dr. Sarah McDermott. And I'm Dr. Lisa Adams. And today we're going to be talking to consultant gastroenterologist Dr. Bliss about Irritable Bowel Syndrome. All right, so we've got Dr. Bliss here today to talk to us about um, all things gastroenterology. Um, would you mind just introducing yourself, Dr. Bliss, for the listeners? Hi, I'm Phil Bliss. I'm a consultant gastroenterologist uh, here at Wigan. I've been a consultant gastroenterologist since 2000, spending most of my career here in Wigan, but also a bit of time in Liverpool. And I'm currently the clinical director for gastroenterology and scheduled care here at WWL. Um, so maybe you're chatting a little bit about um, IBS, because okay. that is another one that I can imagine comes through to you guys a lot. Yeah. Do you have any um, anything that you notice generally that seems to be a theme within the referrals that come from primary care regarding IBS? IBS, is, the landscape has changed quite a lot in my 19 years as a consultant. I think people are more aware of it in primary care. I think GPs are happy to come to that diagnosis themselves. They're aware that, the, that it's a very common condition and the the link between stress and irritable bowel syndrome and sort of the, the other f- different factors that cause IBS. Uh, we've got good tests now, which we can help sort of rule out a lot of patients needing investigation, in particular I'm thinking of faecal calprotectin. Yes. That's, that's really thing. changed the landscape. In the, If you've got somebody who you think's got functional GI symptoms, they've got IBS and they've got no warning signs, and they've got a negative faecal health protecting, then they don't need to be seen in, in secondary care. And I think we yeah. do. We are seeing probably seeing less patients referred with IBS now than we were, probably because the advent of calprotectin. Yeah. However, on the sort of negative side of that, if you like, is that previously, if somebody was referred to us with IBS, we'd do a, some blood tests. We'd check them for celiac. We always do a celiac screen for IBS because that can be misdiagnosed. But now we tend to get patients refer from the GPs the GPs already we checked the celiac disease yeah because that's what we were doing 2002 2003 2004 so they come with their negative celiac screen so previously they'd have the blood test celiac screen and they'd nearly all get a flexible sigmoidoscopy now with the advent of faecal calprotectin if the faecal calprotectin's negative they don't get a, they don't get a flexible sigmoidoscopy right. yeah but if the faecal calprotectin's positive they nearly all get a colonoscopy now right uh, because you can't if they've got a raised faecal calprotectin, you can't be sure you've not seen the whole colon. Yeah. If you just do a flexible sigmoidoscopy, have they got right-sided Crohn's disease? So we're probably doing less in the way of flexible sigmoidoscopy and more in the way of colonoscopy. Uh, and so from doing the faecal calprotection and, and following up with colonoscopies, are we finding more cases of inflammatory bowel than we were before? I don't think so. I, th- I think we probably would have picked those up anyway. And a lot of the time you get a calprotectin of... 70 or 80 yes. and there might be an argument for doing it again yeah you know and if and if it's still elevated then doing a a, a colonoscopy because a lot of the colonoscopies that we do in patients with calprotectins of 80 90 even 150 a lot of them tend to be negative that don't right. tend to have ibd right. obviously those in the thousands we find ibd but then they tend to have had you know diarrhea weight loss abdominal pain mother with Crohn's disease and a brother with ulcerative colitis and they've got raised CRP and low albumin. So it's sort of, they've got high index, the calprotectin is just, you were doing a colonoscopy for those patients anyway, even without the calprotectin. Yeah, gotcha. Um, And I think actually the lab result does come back now and tell you to repeat it 
if it's Is mildly it? raised yeah. yeah because i've had a few of those come back and when i've repeated it it's either dropped yeah. or it's risen significantly yeah. so it does give you an idea of what to do and the, I suppose the other thing to say about calprotectin is it's good in the young patient. I think we get referrals for patients in the 60s and 70s mm. with change of bowel habit and a calprotectin. I, I wouldn't bother with a calprotectin in those patients. Yeah. Anybody in the sort of high-risk category, they're getting a colonoscopy, whether their calprotectin is, is positive or, or negative, mm. because you're not as worried about IBD in those patients. You're worried about cancer. Yeah. And calprotectin isn't... a a test for cancer really the advent of fit it'll be the sort of calprotectin for the cancer. suspected cancer patients yeah. and that will again probably won't reduce the number of colonoscopies that we do just like calprotectin won't reduce the number of endoscopies that we do but it makes sure that we're doing it in the right, in the right patients yeah. so our diagnostic yield from those tests is likely to go up yeah, that makes sense. And kind of following on from that, I guess, uh, maybe we touch on the red flags for someone presenting with yeah. bowel-type symptoms. Yeah. If that's okay, if you could run through what you'd be worried about. Obviously, over a certain age, neuron-set change of bowel habit, rectal bleeding, uh, weight loss, anemia, and family history is very significant, mm. both a family history of inflammatory bowel disease or a family history of colorectal cancer. Fantastic. So if they've just presented with, actually, we've not really talked about the classic symptoms of IBS. So maybe you could give us a rundown of that as well. Sort of the main things are sort of uh, abdominal pain, bloating, wake up a size 12, go to bed a size 16. The sort of bloating gets worse as time goes on through the end of the day. And the pain classically is relieved by moving your bowels or passing wind, alternating constipation and diarrhea. But one day you're going three times a day, then you, then you don't go for four or five days. Sometimes patients notice a lot of mucus and some patients, not all patients, will have other functional type symptoms like fibromyalgia, feeling tired all the time, those sort of uh, associated conditions. conditions. And just before, I think we spoke in our dyspepsia podcast about subclassifying dyspepsia. We, as gastroenterologists, we subclassify IBS. We tend to think of it as constipation predominant. Mm diarrhea predominant or sort of gas bloat type predominant right. and there's different drugs which work for for those different types um, and you've mentioned some of the tests that we should be doing so thinking about the fecal calprotectin yeah. the celiac screen and yeah. um, do you think there's a role for doing the ca125 tests especially in slightly older women they're not in our guidelines for ibs but i think we do have a low threshold for women who assess uh, who complain of abdominal distension and um, bloating where you're worried about ovarian pathology and I think the best test to do there is an ultrasound scan. Yeah so just as an aside on this point we felt worth interrupting the discussion here after we spoke to Dr Bliss we wanted to check the guidelines on when a CA125 blood test is recommended. Um, yes so um, Sarah we checked the NICE guidelines for ovarian cancer um, and they currently state that women over 50 um, who are presenting with vague abdominal symptoms mm. um, including those also found in IBS um, such as bloating, constipation, diarrhea yeah. um, or other symptoms that are less relevant to this podcast such as loss of appetite, early satiety um, as in a feeling of feeling full um, urinary frequency or urgency um, if those symptoms are happening frequently or persistently um, for over a month and the woman has a normal abdominal examination then a CA125 can be offered yeah and Dr Bliss is absolutely right though if there is a concern an ultrasound scan of the ovaries is useful because CA125 is not always raised in ovarian cancer and up to a third of early ovarian cancers it actually can be normal all right and now back to the podcast and so what would your initial management for irritable bowel syndrome be? 
reassurance, yeah. explain what it is. Yeah. And I think it's important that we make IBS a positive diagnosis rather than, hmm. I'm not sure what you've got. I'm going to do all these tests. And then when they come back negative, say, oh, it must be irritable bowel syndrome because the patients will then not believe you. Yeah. They think they've, they think that you think they've got something wrong with them and that you just can't find it. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's very important from the outset to say, this sounds very much like irritable bowel syndrome. And it's amazing how often when you say that to a patient, they say, I thought I had irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. So just giving them that a positive reassurance that it, you, you agree that it's IBS uh, and then say, I think it's IBS, but I'm just going to run some sort of routine tests. Just check we're not missing anything else. Yeah. But I'm 95, 98, 99% sure this is IBS and making it a positive diagnosis from the outset and that removes a lot of the anxiety and some patients will just feel better because they know it's IBS and you discuss stress and they say you say how diet most cases of IBS are linked with stress and they say well yeah actually you know when, when I'm bad at work me this pain gets worse and when I was on holiday in Spain in the summer I was, was fine I was great and uh, so you explore influence of stress on their symptoms patients are always looking for a dietary solution to ibs yeah obviously if they've got celiac disease then gluten-free diet will help that some patients are gluten intolerant or wheat intolerant without having celiac disease mm. and you know if they find that cutting certain things out of their diet helps then far be it from us to say don't yeah, be silly do you know so you know carry on doing that fodmaps diet has has helped with uh, management of ibs mm. but that's quite labour intensive from a dietitian point of view and we yeah. don't really have the full dietitian workforce to be able to do proper full max full full FODMAP diet yeah. a- a- assessment for all the IBS patients so you can point them in the in the direction of FODMAP's diet websites and that and they might find just by working it through themselves they might find that, yeah. that some things they can cut out the diet and help um, and are there any patients that you would recommend that we maybe think about dietitian referral I think ones that have coming back time after time a lot of patients you know will come on she'll tell me we've got IBS they'll say that's great you might see them again yeah so if we it's again it's about making best use of resources our, our fit and our calprotectin will make, will make best use of our endoscopic resources if frequency of consultation and you know they take up a lot of time in, in primary care and secondary care mm-hmm. if we maybe might get most from sending those patients to dietitians for FODMAPs diet or it may be they've got resistant disease and it's not going to help yeah. with those patients it's, it's hard to hard to tell it's true and are there any um kind of medications that are really useful and that we could be using in these patients I mean, some patients find antispasmodics helpful buscopan mebeverine colofat those type of drugs mm. but it's not great yeah and i think it should be explained to them that none of the tablets for ibs work it's a combination of factors it's stress management lifestyle maybe dietary if there are any dietary triggers some antispasmodics and if you've got diarrhea predominant irritable bowel syndrome antidiarrheal drugs like loperamide imodium are very good yeah some of those patients with diarrhea predominant ibs may be lactose intolerant so you can explore maybe cutting out dairy produce in the diet yeah and what we find is patients who become lactose intolerant is they they get an enteric infection of, of some description, whether on holiday or in this country. And after they clear the enteric infection, they become lactose intolerant because uh, I don't know how many of our listeners are aware that lactose tolerance is very unusual. Most It's only Caucasians yeah. that retain the ability to metabolise lactose beyond the weaning period. And so, uh, and often an enteric infection will 
render a previously lactose tolerant patient lactose intolerant right. uh, after and so it's worth cutting out dairy and see if that helps in patients if especially the history you know i went to whole, oh, i was i was fine i went to mexico for a week yeah. got an enteric infection and come back and I've, I, the diary has never got better since that might be lactose intolerance so that's just something to explore mm. the other thing that we sometimes see is bile acid diarrhea bile acid malabsorption which would give you diarrhea predominantly as well bowel syndrome now sometimes that comes on after cholecystectomy so you have mm. your gallbladder out and you get diarrhea after a cholecystectomy and those patients can respond to the bile acid sequestrants uh questron or the new covalent sam the uh, the newer bile acid sequestrants yeah. uh, but they tend to be quite cumbersome to take and not that nice to take so i think you can't be good old-fashioned laparamide for your diarrhea predominant or bowel syndrome then you've got your constipation predominant ibs again you need to look at the dietary factors yes. uh, laxatives senna uh, movie call all those type of things and then there's the, if once you tried a couple of those you can move on to your second line ones, precalapride, yeah. and the, the, the newer anti, uh, the newer active agents. The bloating pain type patient tend to be a bit more difficult to to treat, and those patients can often respond to low dose antidepressant tablets. Ah, yes, uh, yeah. Tend to either your tricyclic antidepressant or your serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And obviously, if you're a diarrhea predominant IBS patient, then a tricyclic might be better for you because that might be slightly constipating as well. Yeah. Whereas if you're a constipation predominant, maybe you wouldn't want to Don't use want a tricyclic, and maybe use your SSRIs in those patients. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And we always try and explain to the patient if I'm going to do that, I explain that these are drugs for depression, but I'm not giving them to them because I think they're depressed. Yeah. Because they'll read and they'll think that. That's what you're Do- doing. Dr. Bliss is fobbing me off. He thinks I'm just depressed. Yeah. And if you explain the understand, if you explain the rationale, how the, you know, the nerves in our brain that control our moods and our feelings control our, how our gut works as well. Because everybody's, everybody knows that when they're nervous, they get, everyone who's ever done an exam has had irritable bowel syndrome for a day, haven't they? So <laughs> we all know how stress does affect our, our gut. Yeah. And I think exploring that with the patient helps them more acceptance in taking these, uh, these low dose uh, antidepressant medications yeah that makes sense that's a nice way to put it um and so it's it sounds really as if these patients who don't have any red flags and are fine shouldn't really be coming to secondary care because we should be able to manage them and if we're struggling we've got the dietitians to help hopefully, us hopefully yeah can the gps directly access the dietitians I, i'm not sure I, th- I think the dietitians might struggle to take i could paralyze the dietetic service myself yep. in a week <laughs> if i sent all the patients to them so we have to be quite selective yeah. and again there's a role for commissioners in this process that you know would commissioners be interested in commissioning some FODMAPs dietitians in the community to deal with all this and if you think of the patients you could potentially divert from going to come and see me in in my clinic but go and see a dietitian and probably get just as much if not more out of it than seeing me but that's a decision for for them we can't take today is there no. We can lobby for it. But. <laughs> um, it's definitely something for um, the, the listeners, the GPs in Wigan, to maybe think yeah. about um, yeah. and think about their yeah. IBS referrals and, and what might be more useful for them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's a very good um, kind of summary of um, IBS. Is there anything regarding these topics that you want GPs to take away from today? Uh, well, so just use our guidelines. We've got guidelines for IBS. We think they're fit for purpose. Yeah. If you don't, uh, in primary care, please get back to us yeah uh use advice and guidance if if you've used use these guidelines and there's still some queries that that you want clarification on we can get back to you with advice and guidance again irritable bowel syndrome just like 
dyspepsia, it's a chronic condition. Once you've got IBS, you like to have IBS through most of your life. You'll have good times with it and bad times with it. And the difficulty is, of course, when to refer back. A significant proportion of our outpatient activity is patients that we've seen before. Yeah. And it's hard to know when to refer back and when not to refer back. And I would go back to what I said with dyspepsia, use your red flags, yeah. changes in symptoms, weight loss, abnormal blood tests, refer back. But if somebody's got the same symptoms in 2019 as they had in 2015 and 2013 and 2011, then you don't necessarily need to see them back. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll often see patients who've seen... Dr. Keld in 2011, Dr. Prasad in 2013, Dr. Lee in 2015, Dr. Benate in 2017, and it's Dr. Bliss's turn in 2019. Yeah. Maybe we can, if we just reduce that, we could improve our access for the other patients yeah. who uh, might have get more out of coming to see us. Fantastic. And I guess that would be another use as well yeah. for advice and guidance. Yeah. If you're just not too yeah. sure about a slight change that someone's having, maybe run it past that before yeah. referring in. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for coming and spending time with us today. Um, and I guess if anyone has any feedback on the pathways, they can always yeah. get in touch with you yeah. to let you know about yeah. any anything they'd like changed. Great. So thank you so much to Dr. Bliss for going through irritable bowel syndrome with us. Um, I really found a lot of interesting points there. The whole thing of classifying IBS into its different categories and, and the treatments was really useful. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I particularly took away about how to make it sound like a positive diagnosis for patients. Yeah. Um, it's not just kind of the last thing that we could find that might be wrong with them. So I think I'm going to use that more in future. Yeah. And I also, I guess, find it useful about the um, antidepressants to pick the right one for the type of symptoms that they're having. Yeah, that's right. And then the part about lactose intolerance and considering this was really useful as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, you're right, Sarah. And in terms of um, Dr. Bliss talking about the guidelines, um, as we said in our previous podcast, um, there are some um, gastroenterology guidelines that we did find a little bit difficult to find on SharePoint. Um, but we have asked the CCG and they're hopefully going to make it a little bit more obvious, um, putting it on the GP section with the other pathways. So keep a little eye out for that. Brilliant. And then... The other thing was that we would just really like your feedback about these podcasts and um, we've done a really short survey just asking about what you've enjoyed, what's been useful and technical things. So if you could fill that out, it's just as a link. Yeah, in our um, in the podcast description, we've included a little link there for people to click on. Yeah, lovely. Um, and there are other ways that you can contact us as well. Um, so we um, have a, an email, which is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com. Um, and we also um, are on Twitter, so you can tweet us at PCKB Podcasts. Brilliant. Next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost, we're going to be doing a series of cardiology podcasts. Yeah, I'm really excited about those ones. Thank you for listening. Until next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost. This podcast is supported by Wrightington Wigan and Lee CCG. The information in the podcast represents the views and opinions of clinicians interviewed. Listener discretion is advised.